Good morning, guys. Covenant, you are members of the most anxious generation to ever live. And it's all because of the dubious social media apps on your phones that you carry around with you. But this is nothing you haven't already heard a million times before. You know the excessive daily screen time averages. You know the statistics of soaring cases of mental illness. And I'm willing to bet you're tired of hearing about it. But before we abandon the conversation entirely, I wonder if social media and dependence on our phones isn't really what's causing the anxiety that's marked your generation. But before I begin and before you check out, I want to frame this conversation. I was born in 1995, and while most definitions put me as a very young millennial, you and I have a lot in common. I created my first social media account when I was in middle school. I got an iPhone when I was in high school. Um, I have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, although I don't have TikTok yet. (laughs) Even still, I remember in college cringing and struggling not to mentally check out every time I heard the word millennial because I knew what was likely to follow was a lecture on how irresponsible and fragile my generation was. So I get it, and I know it's exhausting. Believe me when I say I don't intend this time to be a chance for me to finally get the spotlight off millennials, but instead I hope to speak to you as a peer, simply sharing some of my thoughts as I have reflected on how we can navigate our culture as we seek to follow Christ. I should mention, as Chaplain already has, most of what I'm going to share with you today is a result of listening to and reflecting on the podcast This Cultural Moment. It's co-hosted by John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. They, in this, they hope to ask, answer the question, rather, um, how we live in a post-Christian context as Christians. Um, Mark Sayer's book, uh, which I need to find, there we are, <laughs> Disappearing Church, From Cultural Relevance to Gospel Resilience, was also particularly helpful. Um, these reflections are also very much the product of many thoughtful conversations I've had with faithful friends. I would recommend the podcast, the book, and processing and community to you. In fact, it is my hope today to further equip and encourage you to continue to engage in this conversation about how we navigate our ever-changing culture as we seek to live out our faith. So to begin, for those of you who'd like to know where we're going, here's an outline. First, we'll look at what our culture promises and then what it demands. Then we'll, seek to, then we'll see that we're unable to live up to its demands. Next, we'll expose this failure as the source of our anxiety. And finally, we will discover how hope and submission to God is the way to experience true peace and stability. Mark Sayers uses the phrase gospel of self as a shorthand to summarize our culture's prominent message. According to Sayers, this message calls for the enthroning of the self as the ultimate authority. The gospel is founded on the values of individuality, freedom, comfort, autonomy, above all else. He argues that this is also not a new invention, um, but merely a resurgence of the first century heresy of Gnosticism. To familiarize ourselves with Gnosticism, um, here's kind of Sayer's synopsis. The individual in the Gnostic understanding was not a child of God, but rather contained the potential to become God. Gnosticism moved the authority seat away from God to the seat of the human soul. Each of us was filled with potential, a divine spark. We just need to look within to uncover the God, the star within us. This trajectory of Christianity, the story of the gospel was reversed. 
the perfect and all-powerful God did not descend to earth to give the gift of salvation. Instead, the individual soul, filled with potential and power, must ascend to the heights of perfection, powered by its own smarts. The Gnostic soul must create and shape itself, become the author of its own identity. According to this gospel, we're not just freed from all restraint and choices, but also in our identity. It's not just that you can do whatever you want to do, but you can be whoever you want to be. This freedom and autonomy is packaged to us as a gift, something to be desired. And if we're honest, it is desirable. Who doesn't want to call all their shots in their own life? Who doesn't want the freedom to pick any identity for themselves and then have the authority to make others believe it? This cultural gift predates the ancient Gnostics. Before we and our first century brothers and sisters were tempted, our first parents fell prey to this prey to its allure. After all, what was not the original sin if not a proclamation of the gospel of self? Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. They wanted to have the authority to know good and evil for themselves, what's right and what's wrong. They desired the ability to take on a different identity, not in the image of God, but as gods themselves. And this was an identity that God never created them to have. The gospel of self just doesn't, doesn't just tell us that we need or can rather give us our own identity, but worse, that we should and that we must. It is now our responsibility to do so. The great bait and switch, responsibility marked as freedom. Sayers explains, the great quest of life is to discover who you really are, to look inside and find your true self, to self-create. We're tasked with discovering and proclaiming our true identity by looking no further than ourselves. But what follows from our identity is our worth. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I believe God actually made it this way. Because God gives us the identity as his imago dei, and we are attributed with the worth that comes from it. And this is a good thing, because it's actually quite a lot of worth. But when the burden to find our true selves is on us, we are consequently given the additional responsibility to derive and defend our worth from our self-proclaimed identity. So the stakes are raised yet again. So to recap, the gospel of self promises freedom, but it delivers more demands. It tasks us with the responsibility of discovering our identity and then defending our worth. So we've seen the gospel of self for what it really is, not freedom, but burden. And while this might be a bummer for our cultural sensibilities, this isn't necessarily anxiety-inducing yet, except for the fact that it turns out we can't fulfill this demand. It turns out that the problem with enthroning ourselves as the ultimate authority in our lives is that we are miserably bad at it. And I think we know this intuitively. In an attempt to create a name for ourselves, we end up creating a false self to present to others. In my pride, I inflate my gifts and abilities, and in my insecurity, I mock and belittle myself. I want to be vulnerable, I want to make sure, but I want to make sure I'm not too vulnerable, or at least not vulnerable about the things that will end up making me look bad. In my hall prayer and praise, I would stick to the safe sins to confess, the ones that I knew everyone probably struggled with, and especially that we had no intention of growing in. I wanted to be known, and I wanted to be ex- but I didn't want to be exposed as irrelevant, stupid, or worst of all, judgmental. So we share enough to make us feel for a moment vulnerable and known, but carefully so that our identity can stay intact if we're rejected. And, if, and we're left feeling lonely, wondering if anyone really knows who we are or if anyone cares to. We feel like frauds, and we hate it, but we choose our self, false selves 
because we feel safer that way. At least we're in control, right? At least we're still on the throne. Or when I look within myself, I realize I lack something to create the identity that I want. So I frantically look for something or someone to fill it. At times, I've chosen alcohol to give me the cool edge. With alcohol, I can quiet the self-doubting voice in my head that keeps me from being the confident person I want to be. Or I choose people. I find someone who gives me the thing that I lack. Maybe it's confidence again, or a spot in the friend group that I'd been chasing, or maybe just a deep sense of being loved. My friendships quickly turn into addictions, needing the other to make my self-made identity whole clinging to them because my self-made life depends on them, all the while not concerned at all for showing sacrificial love to them. Or, in efforts to be known quickly and deeply, I rely on things like personality tests, and in so doing, reduce my identity to a number or a type. Personality tests aren't necessarily that bad. I really love the Enneagram. They can, be a helpful t- they can be a helpful tool because God did make us very complex, both in our shared humanity and in our individuality. So complex even, I'm not sure this side of heaven will ever see who we are fully. Where it can become dangerous, though, is when I, tasked with forging my own identity, reduce myself to the pieces of my identity that can be easily shared. And these are just a few ways I've seen myself accept the demands of this gospel of self and how I failed. I'd invite you to consider ways that you, whether the same or different, have also tried to do this, and also how you failed. So, this is all bad enough, Um, but then we mix in social media to this already toxic cocktail. Social media makes the lie that we must define our identity all the more believable. We talk about someone's brand on social media, or refer to people as YouTube personalities. When talking about our Instagram feeds, we use words like curating. We practice by picking the best picture with the best angle of ourselves, and then we edit and filter it. We turn our identities into avatars, trying on different personalities to see which one gets the most likes. And for the most part, we do it successfully. I don't post the picture of the weekend that I spent watching Netflix and doing chores. I don't update my story with a video of me and my husband fighting about some unstated and unreasonable expectation that I had for him that he failed. That one came really easily, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Instead, I can maintain my identity as blissfully married with a life filled with hikes through nature with our dog. Even still, we know it's all a facade. We know we are only presenting the highlight reels because we talk about it all the time but our hearts are still torn. We still believe that we can create an identity for ourselves, and we love that we can pretend with more ease online. In all of this, we've dethroned God, the good and perfect king, and crowned ourselves. And we want the kingdom without the king. Sayers claims the final checkmate of the secular coup is accomplished by not a frontal assault upon theology, but a practical atheism that offers the fruits of shalom minus the tree of the biblical faith that bore it. But we, God's handiwork, who are made for worshipful submission, make lousy kings. Oh, but how much we want our little kingdoms to flourish. But we can't, because we are set up with a failed gospel. I don't have the power, the authority, or even the knowledge to name myself. Or create, an identi- or create a kingdom that's anything like the kingdom of God. 
And this is the root of our anxiety, our inability to fulfill the singular demand of the gospel of self. Anxiety just definitionally is just trying to control something that you don't have control over. Anxiety builds as we are told we can and we should do something we shouldn't and actually can't do. And this failure failure hits at the core of who we are, our identity and our worth. And that's no small potatoes. The responsibility of creating our identity and worth paired with our inability to do it is crushing us. It is the responsibility that we were never made to do, a task we were not equipped for. And this doesn't just impact our mental health, but it has a kingdom impact. Satan is delighted with the gospel of self because it's taken us out of our kingdom call. Instead of loving others, we're alienated from them because the gospel of self is a necessarily inward-looking endeavor. When we're the arbiters of our own truth and value, there's no room for self-forgetfulness. It's the opposite of dying to self, but living for self. We ask ourselves, when will I ever be secure enough to just listen without trying to think of a response? Or we think, man, I know my friend, what they're choosing is not honoring to God, and I know it's going to have consequences for them, but I just don't want them to think I'm judging them. We can't love our friends biblically because we can't get past ourselves and our dire need to protect our fragile identities. So to recap again, we're told by our culture's gospel of self that we can create our identity. This gift of freedom turns out to be a demand, and we find that we can't live up to it. This produces anxiety in us. So you know where I'm going, right? We just need to accept the identity we already have in Christ. And finding our identity in Christ seems so simple. The phrase we throw it around all the time. I remember in college always talking about my secure identity in Christ. I so longed to experience this security because my insecurity was and is an ever-present, albeit unwanted, companion. So whenever I would start to feel my insecurity take over, I would just tell myself, your identity is in Christ, not what your peers or professors think of you. But it wouldn't work because I still believed it was up to me. It didn't work because I wanted the security of Christ, but I still wanted to be in control. In fact, I had become quite accustomed to ruling my own life. Again, I wanted the fruits of God's kingdom while still being on the throne. So yes, we need to find our identity in Christ. But in order to find true rest in our identity, we must submit to Christ as the true king of our lives. This is the Christ as Savior and Lord bit, okay? but it's a really important bit. I understand that submission has become a bad word. I think it's partially because we understand submission costs us something. It costs us our self-promoted position of ultimate authority over our lives. It's the gospel of self's number one rule, right? You're number one. But I think there's more to it than just a rebellious heart. I also want to recognize that we've all been betrayed by someone who has been in authority over us. Maybe even we felt betrayed by God. And both warrant lament. Lament that we still live in a broken world and lament that our fearful hearts experience pain and sometimes really deep pain and believe that God has failed us. I wish I could spend more time on this, um, but if this is you, I would encourage you to bring it before God. He can handle your harsh and honest words. Just read the Psalms for proof. Even in this, though, all we want is to protect ourselves. Submission feels too vulnerable, too uncomfortable, Maybe not even what we signed up for. 
So why, why submit? We don't just submit because God deserves our allegiance, although that should be enough. We submit because as creator, he knows what it means for us to flourish. We submit because he can handle the weight and the complexity of naming us and grounding our worth. Only God is truly both, has both the power and authority to do so. And in creation, he names us image bearers. And in the act of redemption, he names us his children. No other name for yourself will ever come close to what you already have in Christ. There's no identity that we can craft that will carry the dignity and value God has already given. We were made for glory. And only in Christ will our true glory be revealed through the power of the Holy Spirit making us new. You will be the most you when you submit to Christ. And you can't lose it. You don't have to tirelessly and anxiously maintain your identity. You don't have to keep oscillating between dozens of fragmented pieces of your self-made identity. In Christ, our identity is secure. It's stable. We can't lose it because we didn't earn it in the first place. It was a gift. My friends, I want to challenge you. You cannot get the beauty, the freedom, the security, and the rest that comes from rooting your identity in Christ if you don't submit to him. Although submission feels scary and unnatural, it is merely admitting in our hearts that we do not have the authority to name ourselves. Submission doesn't change anything about God. He is and always will be on the throne. The fact remains, only God can give us our identity, sinner and saint alike, whether or not we submit. But in submission, we are reminding our hearts of that truth. We are exposing our self-made throne for what it is, a convenient, yet destructive lie. Submission, therefore, is merely a humble posture before God. But this is a posture, but in this posture, rather, we experience the rich blessing of taking on the burden that we cannot bear. So you followed me this far, and now you're wondering, okay, how do we do this? How do I submit to Christ um, to get this identity rooted in him? And the answer is far from new. It's through confession and repentance. Understanding our cultural gospel of self is helpful. We can see where we need to confess. And it's great that we know we're sinners. And it's great that we know even specifically how we sin. Um, but this isn't the, it is the first step, but it's not the final um, step. Confession without repentance is not what we're called to. For it is in repentance that we adopt the humble posture of submission, where we experience the goodness of being in right relationship with God. To give a personal and very recent example of this, while writing this chapel talk this week, I was starting to feel some anxiety build up inside. And at one point, I brought it to my husband, Mark's attention. Um, I confessed that I thought part of the reason why I was feeling so anxious was because I might have had some realis- unrealistic expectations. I told him that I believed and expected this to be the best chapel talk you've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. At least maybe for the semester, I qualified. Um... Mark graciously listened and then assured me that it will certainly not be the best chapel talk. (laughs) And then he went on to say how that was okay anyway. But I didn't hear the bit about how it was going to be okay because I was so offended that he didn't think I had what it would take to give the best chapel talk you've ever heard. (laughs) And it was in that moment that I knew I was just confessing. I wasn't repenting. So after I realized how I had already made quickly grounding my identity in my chapel talk that is literally about how we can't do that, I felt God's tug on my heart to repent, to release my identity to him, to repurpose my chapel talk, not to increase my self-worth, but to give God the glory by serving you, his people. 
Just this past week, I had to confess and repent so many times that same thing. But each time, after confession and repentance, God was faithful to reorient my heart and calm my anxieties. And it wasn't right away every time, but the more I reflected on what he asked of me, just to worship him even through this, the more free and excited I was to share with you today. In the process, my anxious thoughts were replaced with God's words, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're offered many things in our culture that all seem very pleasing to the eyes. The freedom promised in autonomy looks good and it feels good. The lack of responsibility and individualism feels easier. I think doing the hard work of exposing the gospel of self as a destructive and ugly lie can help make repentance come more easily. When we see the emptiness and the lack of fruit from our sin, it becomes less desirable. We become thirsty for the promise of the gospel of Christ, not self. So we must train our eyes to see through the facade, cultivate a gaze that can cut through the empty promises of this world to find rest on the beauty of God and his gospel. You must meditate on God's word as he names and grounds you, which as an aside means you actually have to read God's word and submit to even the seemingly unfun names like servant or being called to be holy. But friends, the gospel of Christ gives you something that the gospel of self can't. It gives you freedom, the ability and call to move outside of yourself and to live into these names. You are free to love God and others selflessly and sacrificially with the power of Holy Spirit. And that's what's truly beautiful. So I encourage you to use your conversations about social media or your anxiety to get to the heart of this spiritual problem. You've bought into the gospel of self, and now only God can rescue you from yourself. I encourage you to ask vulnerably God, your friends, and your mentors to show you how you need to repent. Remember, this isn't a one-and-done sort of thing. It becomes a practice, a continual process. The habit of naming and turning from your false selves to submission to the true identity you have in Christ. You'll unmask one self-made identity only for another to pop up. The goal this side of heaven is not perfection, but loyalty to God and to continue to return to him. And God throws a party when you return to him in confession and repentance. Truly, Jesus is jazzed about your repentance. He died for it, right? Now, hearing your call to action, I want to send you with a word of encouragement. I know you've been given a lot of reasons to despair about your generation, but God gives you a lot of reason to hope. We're at a cultural moment when the gospel of self is being exposed. We see its fruits as rotten, producing only rampant anxiety. And we can share the good news of the gospel of Christ to a culture being crushed by their own false gospel. We, experiencing the gospel through continued confession and repentance, are released to be God's kingdom workers, offering renewal, peace, and wholeness to a watching world. So yes, there's good reason for concern, but there's all the more hope for how God will continue to use you who humbly submit to him to bring about his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you use us um, to be your kingdom workers. Lord, that you humble our hearts, that you gently guide us off our own thrones, and that you, in your goodness and your love, continue to pour your rich blessings in naming us as your children. In your son's name I pray. Amen.